Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with our look at key issues and the week ahead. But first, joining us for what has become a regular look at air and missile defense, as well as long-range strike uh, issues, is Dr. Tom Carrico, who is the director of the Missile Defense Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and one of the world's leading experts, not only on air and missile defenses, but also long-range strike. Tom, welcome back. It's always a pleasure having you on the program. Good morning, Vago. Uh, Great to be here. Uh, an absolute pleasure. We ended the year with a with a great conversation at some uh, macro uh, issues, and now we're going to continue on on a regular look uh, because this is a space that uh, obviously uh, has a lot going on. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Our coverage of the recent Surface Navy Association's annual symposium was sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries. Uh, Tom, uh, obviously a lot has happened since you last uh, joined us. Uh, There is now a global debate about whether or not Russia is going to be invading Ukraine or not. Um, What I want to talk about is the capabilities that Moscow is arraying, both on the defensive side, but also uh, very, very formidable capabilities the Russians are develop, uh, deploying uh, for long-range strike systems like the Iskander, which is uh, a land-based system, uh, the Caliber, the naval uh, uh, cruise missile, uh, a lot of naval capabilities being deployed to the, uh, the Black Sea, uh, as well as ground capabilities. Let's talk on strike, because people hear names like Iskander, Caliber, and other systems. Um, talk to us a little bit about the capabilities the Russians are fielding and what each of these discrete capability sets can do, because as we saw uh, in 2014, the Russians were able to di- direct precision mass fires that, that completely destroyed, for example, a Ukrainian battalion. So the Russians are pretty good at this game. What are the capabilities they're fielding and what can they do? Right. Well, hey, Vago, good to see you at SNA, Service Navy. Uh, and uh, as you say, there's been a lot happening uh, the last few months. Uh, the the Twitter videos and the, the other videos that have been out there, you know, uh, percolating on the on the interweb have, you know, seen a hand, a bunch of you know canisters on trailers that kind of look like they belong to an Iskander. Uh, there's been a bunch of uh, longer, uh, bigger tubes on, on rail cars. And then there's been, you know, what appears to be some uh, S-300 or S-400 uh, air defenses being being shipped to the border. And so you see uh, quite a bit of kit being assembled. Of course, there's lots of other things that they have in the air and, uh, and at sea. I guess you mentioned 2014, the, the uh, first, uh, I guess, invasion of, uh, of Ukraine. And, and, and some of the, uh, you know, Russia's always been uh, artillery-centric or rocket-centric to, to some extent. But, you know, the 2014 thing could have been a warm-up by comparison. I think basically that episode, and then also think about the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan, where you saw, you know, drones and and all these sorts of things going back and forth. It, it, it could be a, a kind of a perfect case study, uh, uh, sadly, uh, if uh, the, the the Russians bring all this stuff to bear. Uh, you know, you mentioned the the S four hundred, the Russians themselves, and the thing that they're they're moving uh, air defenses into Belarus to kind of be in that vicinity. Uh, and then I would also, I think it was today, the, there was some, some news or reported news about 
uh, the Poles potentially sending some some air defenses to Ukraine uh, to help them out. Uh, the Poles, of course, very uh, uh, keenly interested in, in what's happening here. And uh, I think you were kind of alluding to this, Vago, but but you know, I think <laughs> this is a kind of a reminder that that while it's good to and important and salutary for the United States to have given javelins and such, you know, anti-tank weapons to the Ukrainians over the years, uh, that's going to be uh, woefully <laughs> inadequate in the face of what you might kind of tie together as you know complex integrated air and missile attack. Uh, and I think we could uh, could soon see the full potential of that. Um, I, I want to get into the defensive side, but what are some of the specific capabilities, right? I mean, in terms of range and payload uh, that we should be looking at, especially for uh, the Russian longer range strike weaponry, right? Because, uh, you know, Dr. Harlan Ullman uh, joined, uh, joins us uh, often. He is one of the principal author of the shock and awe doctrine, right? Where, where you can use a really big kinetic uh, uh, precision attacks to destabilize uh, the center of gravity for an adversary. That's pretty much right out of Russian doctrine as well. Uh, what are the specific capabilities of the systems that could be unleashed against the Ukrainians? Well, look, I think if you just take a look at what they've demonstrated and kind of the, the, the big obvious uh, big ticket items here, you know, the, uh, uh, the United States uh, uh, withdrew from the INF Treaty because of the, some of the ground launched uh, uh, missiles of various kinds that uh, 9M72N, for instance, that Russia had been developing for, for quite some time. Uh, you may recall several years ago, the, the calibers that were, which is sort of the, the, the popular name for several uh, different cruise missiles that Russia used, what was it, from the Caspian Sea uh, to hit, uh, I think, ISIS targets in Syria, quite, quite a distance away. Uh, you know, the, the, the loss, the capability, the message about that capability was not lost on anybody. Uh, if they can do that uh, to hit things in Syria, they can hit things on the other side of Europe if they if they need to. So, uh, you know, the Iskander, that's kind of uh, INFE uh, type range, uh, depending on who you talk to. But um, that, the, the, there's there again, the characteristics are primarily of maneuverability. You know, the, the, the Iskander probably has a, uh, several different types of, of warheads. Again, it's known for its maneuverability. Uh, uh, the Iskander launcher may actually mix kind of ballistic uh, type missiles with cruise missiles to have you know different trajectories coming at the same time, uh, and then on the more on the caliber side, you know think think really long range cruise missiles for the U.S. It's a Tomahawk, uh, but uh, this is you know <laughs> at least hundreds of kilometers, uh, if not if not much more than that uh, for for these things. So you put these things together again, it's about the mixing and matching. It's about the effects and not the particular range or something like that. Uh, right. And the Ukrainians are going to have a, a hard time. Um, uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, missile, uh, air and missile defenses. Uh, obviously, the Russians have a very, very sophisticated air force. Ukrainian air force is not that sophisticated. So just on an aircraft to aircraft basis, uh, there's going to be uh, um, a lot of capability that's uh, uh, positioned against the Ukrainian side. You, you mentioned S-400 among the integrated uh, air and missile defenses. What are some of the other capabilities uh, that, that the Russians will have? And again, your point was it's, it's not just in, the, in having capable air defenses. It's not just in having capable uh, long-range strike capabilities. The Russians really have integrated both the defensive and the strike elements of this. Walk us through sort of the architecture right. uh, that the Russians have established that make it so formidable. Right. Well, uh, again, we don't know exactly what's there. We're seeing various uh, Russian air defenses in, in the vicinity in different places. Uh, we talked about kind of the, some of the offensive stuff they're assembling. But I would add the, the, the drone thing here as well. And this is why I mentioned the, 
the Gorno-Karabakh conflict. And in that conflict, you had some Russian-made kit that was that was destroyed from above, as, as folks recall, uh, using some drones. And that's that's an interesting angle here. It's not just just about the you know the the, the missiles as we typically think about them, but the Ukrainians, for instance, have. Uh, some Turkish-made drones, which is an interesting dynamic, and the Russians aren't uh, too happy about that. And so it's it's, it's going to be a, a mixing and matching, I think, on both sides. Although the Russians are much more much more capable uh, of the drones with the several missile uh, capabilities. And so uh, you mentioned the air defenses. You know, obviously the. Uh, the air power is probably going to be significantly overmatched. And that's why the air defenses are something that the, they're scrambling to get. And if the polls, for instance, come through, if, if other countries come through with that, that would be a significant help because of the disproportionate uh, air, uh, air dominance capabilities. And uh, what are the Ukrainian air defense uh, capabilities at this point, right? I mean, people are talking about putting more of capability in there. We've got a lot of anti, uh, anti-tank uh, weaponry of, of questionable value, depending on who you talk to. It's great to have, but it's, it's no panacea uh, dealing with the kind of integrated forces Russia is fielding uh, and taking nothing away from uh, you know, the capabilities of the Ukrainian army, which actually remain quite formidable if, if it was mobilized. Uh, fully, which it is not yet, um, based on all accounts. What are some of the indigenous, you know, what are the capabilities the Ukrainians are bringing to this party? Right. So look, it's going to be pretty limited, uh, unfortunately. And for those folks who who talk about, you know, sending patriots halfway, that's that's very tough. You've got to train on them and, and that sort of thing. You can't just uh, unbox them and, uh, and, and use them in that way. Uh, it, it, but I think the short answer to question is very limited. So think, you know, some, you know, we, we might call them man pads or we might think of stingers and things like that. Some of those things are, are probably in the in the mix, but that's you know pretty limited. Let's go to the Middle East where uh, Houthi forces uh, have have really been uh, striking back against the United Arab Emirates as well as uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, and that's given an opportunity, for example, the, for the THAAD uh, theater, high altitude area uh, air defense system to uh, be used operationally uh, for the first time or had the first successful intercept. Talk to us about what's going on in the Middle East uh, and the capabilities that are, you know, sort of the back and forth that's going on uh, between uh, the United Forces of uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and uh, the Yemeni Houthis. So March of this year will mark the, uh, I believe, the seventh uh, anniversary of what we call the Yemen Missile War. Uh, that was when the Saudis, you know, con- conducted some some airstrikes on missiles on the ground that had been left over from from many years ago from the Bush administration, uh, and they thought it was over. And here we are seven years later, and it's become, you know, much more intense. This, this is, as well as Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, is a really important case study, and, and my CSIS colleagues uh, have, have written on this uh, extensively. Uh, and so this has been flaring up, uh, up and down over the past seven years. Uh, and in the past couple of weeks, we've seen a uh, a, a new go round. The Saudis have been going and uh, undergoing uh, kind of persistent weekly UAV attacks for some time, but there's a flare up, and you've seen in the news. First of all, as you say, the first, the historical first of the the THAAD uh, uh, missile defense system hitting uh, uh, one attack, uh, and importantly, this is the first uh, you know combat usage of the system, and it was done by the Emiratis. Uh, but there's also been several other Patriot. Uh, uh, Patriot uh, intercepts over just over the past uh, week or two as well. So if you, if you think you can focus on Russia and Ukraine, <laughs> uh, they they uh, they're not going to let us. There, there's also things going on there. 
That's not letting up. Um, um, I uh, remember, uh, you know, very early in my career, right uh, when the UAE became the first Thad uh, country country to embrace Thad. So I remember uh, remember uh, that story now, which is about three decades ago, Tom. So that sort of dates me. Um, let's talk a little bit about the North Koreans. Uh, back to testing uh, ever longer range uh, weapons and now hypersonics uh, that are in the mix. Uh, what are the North Koreans doing that are new and needle moving from your perspective? Mm, well, they, they seem to be raising their hand and they don't want to be forgotten either. Uh, so what we've seen over the past, I would say, month or so, we've seen them throw a number of, of projectiles into the, the Sea of Japan uh, uh, during that time. But, but interestingly, is, is I would really just call it the diversity. And so you kind of had some short range ballistic things. You had some cruise missiles. Uh, you had well, yesterday, day before yesterday, the uh, intermediate range ballistic, very high, I think. 2,000 some kilometer apogee, 700 kilometers down, uh, down range. So very lofted shot. Uh, and then uh, this was, I think, the Hwasong 12 uh, that they, they hadn't really launched something of this range uh, for, for quite a while. Uh, so they're, they're pushing the envelope relative to what they, they had been doing. Uh, and then finally, they had some, um, you know, a, a test of what looked like a, a pointy, uh, pointy maneuverable type thing on the front of it. Uh, maybe it was is that, is that a technical glider. definition? Is that well, a technical so, definition? So it, it, is, it is a technical non-definition because I don't want to say it could be a hypersonic glider of some kind. It could be sort of a maneuvering ranchery vehicle. Uh, and so uh, it's something. And uh, the, the point being that kind of the characteristics of high speed and maneuverability, whether it is this, that or the other thing, it, these are going to become increasingly stressing threats. Uh, and let me uh, bring you back to, uh, to uh, the United States. Uh, United States Army Lieutenant General uh, Neil Thurgood uh, has been uh, doing a, a tremendous job uh, leading the U.S. Army's hypersonic efforts. He's also uh, uh, leading uh, the, the rapid uh, equipping element uh, of the Army to get capability out there as quickly as possible. Uh, the Chief of Staff of the United States Army has told him he wants uh, four uh, hypersonic uh, weapons uh, or, or four batteries, uh, right, uh, that are in service by 2023, uh, and is literally creating a hypersonic industry from, from scratch. He joined us uh, for uh, the conference we do annual, annually with Bank of America, and I know you spoke to him uh, after he spoke to uh, our conference. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the message uh, messages uh, he's got and, you know, sort of the keys to his extraordinary progress uh, to right. date. Right. So, uh, as you say, he came over to, to CSIS uh, recently and talked about this. We got the transcript online. Um, you know, he, the, the RICTO, the Rapid Capability uh, Office for the for the Army, uh, it's kind of whatever the secretary and the uh, the chief uh, say is the priority. Uh, and he really emphasized that. And so right now, a hypersonic strike is one of those things. Uh, but he's got a handful of others, including air-based defense uh, and the like, directed energy, uh, some important uh, direct energy counter UAS and, uh, uh, and other capability there. So that's that's very cool. I would just say a couple things struck me with what he was uh, saying in his in his uh, event with us is uh, it, it doesn't he doesn't have the the, the credit of the, the the only if it's uh, invented here uh, phenomenon. And so he's been really I think shaking things up by going to the Navy, for instance, and working very closely with them on hypersonic strike. The CPS Vice Admiral Wolf, uh, LRHW for 
uh, for, for General Thurgood, working very closely together. But guess what? They're also doing what's called a mid-range capability, taking, again, Navy effectors, Tomahawk and SM-6, and putting them on a nifty, uh, nifty new launcher, uh, which they call the Typhon. Uh, very sophisticated, uh, I think, important development uh, there for the future of air and, air and missile defense and strike. Uh, and, you know, there's probably some other uh, inter-service uh, cooperation. He's getting the, the Air Force's th- Thor uh, directed energy weapon, for instance. So you see that kind of, you know, how can we do things faster and cooperatively uh, without necessarily even recreating the contracts, just using somebody else's contract. So he really emphasized that. And then since you asked about the LRHW, you know, he really talked about the ambition to hand it off from his office, which is getting it off the ground, to the PEO, uh, Program Executive Office Missiles in Space, seamlessly. And he really emphasize that they don't want a year downtime for EMD. They want to take the people in their office and send them over to PEO missiles in space. I think that's, again, a very good and salutary development to avoid the proverbial valley of death. Tom, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much uh, for this update and already looking forward to having you back on again uh, for the next one. Thanks so much. Likewise. Thank you, Vago. And now a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain command and control and joining us as he does every week to talk about whatever is on his mind and the week ahead is Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners. Byron, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bago. Let's start off with uh, earnings uh, so far, right? A lot of the big names uh, reported. You covered that uh, in your report. Some more companies reporting today, L3 Harris uh, being uh, among them, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Booz Allenton, CACI, right? Textron, Northrop, uh, all, all reported uh, last week. Um, give, give, us, give us a sense on what you thought the key takeaways were. I mean, obviously, aside from more dividends, well, more yeah, buybacks. I, I think the, the, the irony on this, Fago, is, look, I don't think there's been any underlying change in what the outlook is for U.S. defense spending. I just think sell-side analysts had not adjusted their estimates to reflect the reality of a flattening U.S. defense budget. And, you know, you also would have thought that people would have, would have made some accommodation for uh, the impact of supply chain disruption and, and COVID-19. Now, arguably, you know, Lockheed Martin took their hit last earnings season when they lowered expectations. But then you've had companies that have introduced uh, full year guidance um, for 2022 in this round of earnings, and they've been getting tattooed as well. Northrop Grumman, uh, you know, came in with what were lower than consensus expectations for sales. L3 uh, did so today. And, And the market has taken these stocks down. I think, you know, it, it's a little odd and, and I think it's probably more on, on the analysts um, than, than necessarily on some underlying change that's been taking place in the outlook for defense spending. Uh, and what do you think was uh, the more granular individual news that you found needle moving? Um, I thought it was interesting that companies were again mentioning or spending a lot of time talking about hypersonic weapon systems. You know, I, I get it. They're important, you know, but they're they're not major needle movers for most of the large cap companies. Um, I think operating margins, you know, had continued to do fairly well in this kind of environment. It was really sales, both sales growth in the December quarter, which for a lot of companies was down. Now there was this technical issue about four fewer days, but you know, it was 
and then again, I think I think the more important factor, you know, what really have been impacting these names was the um, the guidance that they issued for 2022 when, when they did issue uh, firm guidance. The one other thing that I found curious, and you know, this is obviously highly speculative right now, but there really weren't that many questions. I think there was one today in the L3 call, and there's one in the general dynamics call about what does a new potential security environment mean? Um, in Eastern Europe, in, in NATO, uh, in Asia, for that matter, if in fact there's a, a major conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And that's a speculative question, I get it, but you know, do companies have the capacity? You know, can they, can they surge if they need to surge? I mean, it just was kind of MIA. You know, most of the questions were, were pretty prosaic. And the only thing that I find also just amazing, Bago, is that Boeing took yet another charge on the KC-46 tanker program. I mean, someone's got to write a book about that someday. You know, I don't really look that much at the commercial uh, aerospace market. Your, your Sunday uh, business podcast members do that. But it, it just amazes me that this program has racked up the number of so-called one-time charges that that it's done, and I find it really, it's it's kind of an indictment of the broader management of the company that they they continue to take charges on this on this particular program. So, but I, you know, what that means for their overall ability to manage complex programs, the commercial aerospace side, you know, I'll leave that to the people who really <clears throat> follow that more closely. Uh, let's go to uh, geopolitics, right? I mean, you've been following really closely what's going to happen in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, you're, uh, it's a sliding scale about whether we're heading toward conflict or not. Uh, Michael Kaufman uh, joined us um, last week for our conversation. And of, of course, as you know, Tom uh, Carrico joined us at the top of the show. Um, you've been listening to a lot of on and off the record uh, statements. Where do you stand now in terms of whether or not we're heading into conflict? Or not? I have not changed my overall assessment, which is still 70%. Um, you know, I wrote about what, what the other 30% might mean. I just find, you know, the fact that the buildup continues, that there really doesn't seem to be any change in Putin's demands. And, and I just don't see how you bridge some of those demands with, uh, with, with you know, basically the credibility of the NATO alliance. Um, I think... And I'm also very intrigued. I mean, I'm really working off, obviously, open source data. But, you know, the open source data that's out there about the troop buildup in Belarus, um, you know, the deployment of the number of battalion tactical groups on, uh, on effectively Ukraine's northern border and really deep into Ukraine. You know, people think this is just uh, something limited to the Donbass. Uh, the deployments to Belarus, I think, you know, are pointing to potentially a larger campaign. Uh, the fact that you had, you know, what the Canadians are pulling their trainers back into Western Ukraine, I thought was another uh, <clears throat> bit of information. So I still don't, I'm not as optimistic as what I think a consensus is that either there's not going to be a war or it's going to be very limited and Russia's just going to be uh, happy to, you know, kind of assert their control over the Donbass and try and put that uh, saga to a close. I mean, I, I still am of the mind that Putin could go big here and it will be a surprise when that happens, uh, at least at least to what I see in consensus thinking on this. Uh, it's uh, it's always uh, interesting to me uh, that folks, you know, that Ukraine is surrounded on all three sides, on the sea, 
on uh, the Eastern Front and then uh, to the north, uh, where the Belarus uh, border is not very far from Kiev. Uh, so, I mean, right. it's, and, it's and even, you know, yeah, it's just, I mean, you can just look at a map and, and start playing with distances. Um, <clears throat> and it's really, you know, if this was just limited to the Donbass, I don't know why you build up, you know, what, what some sources are flagging is at least 10 battalion tactical groups, if not more, it depends where you look at the disposition of some of these. And as I said, you know, the, the flow of forces is continuing. So there just doesn't, you know, the, the, um, there was a preliminary meeting in the United Nations today. I guess that didn't well, you know, it didn't go well. Um, you know, Russia pushed back against meddling in its internal affairs. China also kind of weighed in against, uh, you know, meddling in Russian affairs. So it, it's not, I, I don't, I don't, understand a lot of the optimism that, oh, you know, we're just going to, you know, we just have to figure out a way to negotiate with Putin and we'll, we'll find a way out of this. Um, I'd like to see more definitive proof that there are some bridges in those negotiations and that actually Russia is standing down forces because until otherwise, I, I think you have to start to assume and start to prepare for the worst here. We've got uh, two minutes, uh, two questions. Uh, The last question will be the week ahead. But um, do you think that this drives a rise in European defense spending ultimately? Or is this something that eh, probably not? Right. I mean, the U.S. message is going to be you guys are going to have to step up. There is more that your guys are are going to have to do uh, ultimately. Right. Even though everybody's looking to Washington to try to do more. um, Ultimately, does this drive more European defense spending? Um, it, it, we're, we're into that wide cone of uncertainty, Bago, which is it really depends, you know, the scale and, and effectiveness of a Russian invasion. And I mean, if the Russians, you know, can knock Ukraine out in a month, um, occupy the entire country and, and, you know, evidence a degree of military competency, that surprises people. I think that's going to scare a lot of people in Europe, um, and and you would see higher uh, defense spending as a result of that. On the other hand, if this turns out to be a mess, um, Russian units are not performing well. Uh, the Ukrainians really put up a stiff fight, uh, and this thing looks like a, a real, you know, a, a critical strategic mistake that Putin has made. It may have the opposite impact that uh, you know R- Russia could be cut down to size and. And that might have some, frankly, a negative uh, bearing on defense. I think you, for now, um, you know, I, I just think it's a to be determined. I, I think that the first initial hurdle to get through is, you know, is there a war? Is there not the war? And then we start filling in scenarios after that. Uh, and let me uh, take you to a quick uh, tour uh, of the week, right? The, the chief of uh, the French chief of naval operations, uh, Admiral Vandier, is going to be speaking at CSIS uh, this afternoon at four o'clock. So this show may or may not be out. So yeah. I'm going to suggest that everybody check that out. What are uh, you know, check check that out on the replay? Uh, what are uh, some of the other events that folks ought to be paying attention to this well, week? Well, you know, there's a classified briefing uh, the administration's going to give to the Senate on 11 a.m. this Thursday. Now. Obviously, that's not going to be broadcast or anything, but it's going to be interesting to see the tone and tenor of that, uh, what, what what senators are saying after that meeting. And then you also have to watch how these sanction bills are coming together um, in the House and Senate uh, as well. Um, you know, what, what we're really kind of telegraphing uh, more openly than any time I can remember what kind of sanctions actions that would be taken against Russia if there is a war. 
Middle East Institute is holding a CENT camp, a CENTCOM conference on the 3rd with General McKenzie. He's going to be keynoting. Um, There are a couple of other uh, think tank events. I think Hudson Institute is also doing something on the 3rd with how the U.S. could help defend Ukraine. Um, And there's a Chatham House event in, uh, in London on the Ukraine crisis and the EU's role in European security on February 3rd as well. And I'm sure there are going to be other pop-up events on this on this topic, Raga. Uh, in, indeed, there will be. Byron, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it and looking forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Will do, Marco. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.